that jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast, a Doctor Who show that's distinctly Scottish. Whether it's some middle-aged fans sitting around to discuss TV episodes, or sharing your thoughts on the latest Big Finish releases, or even being joined by some special guests, every week throughout 2021, we've brought you a brand new episode. I'm Kenny Smith, and we make it one episode of Power of Three a week today with our final episode of the year. And we're joined by somebody who has TV Doctor Who credits on his CV, and he's Scottish too. No, it's not Sylvester McCoy, nor is it Stephen Moffat, or David Tennant, or Peter Capaldi. However, he has worked on some of the Capaldi-era stories. He's also received numerous credits for his work on Big Finish audios, both Doctor Who and Torchwood, plus class. Yes, we're talking about Blair Mowat, a composer from Edinburgh who's worked with Murray Gold and Doctor Who before being commissioned to score the spin-off series Class. Oh, and that last version of the theme that you can hear in the jarring cacophony that we open every episode with was actually Blair's version of the theme, which features in the new adventures of Bernice Sourfield range from Big Finish, where Benny and David Warner's Unbound Doctor explore the universe. It's rather neat, isn't it? You may recently have heard Blair's work on The Amazing Mr. Blunden, which was adapted for TV by Mark Gatiss and shown on Sky on Christmas Eve. And just before Christmas, I had a good chat with Blair from his home in Los Angeles, where we spoke about his career, his love of Doctor Who, and how he came to work on it. Hi there, my name is Blair Mowat, and I'm a composer for film and television. Blair, welcome to the Power of Three podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Could we maybe start off by chatting a wee bit about where your love of music came from? So yes, I I guess I started getting, uh, well I mean I was training as a, uh, as a harpist actually, a Clarsac player. My great auntie was a woman called Sancha Palou. Um, uh, who was a very famous uh, Scottish harpist who taught a lot of the teachers who ended up teaching me harp. And my mum thought it'd be a great idea for me to play harp uh, as my first instrument. So I think that was about, oh, I don't know, six or seven years old um, when I started playing the harp. And that was then followed up by some piano lessons. And um, I was studying music at school. I went to Harriet's um, in Edinburgh. And then it was about sort of 15 or 16 when I started playing in a band there. And we started doing covers of Radiohead and Muse and stuff like that. And I started getting very interested in film scores. And I did this amazing course with a guy called Hummy Mann, who um, was a big sort of composer and orchestrator over in, in Los Angeles. And he came over and did a course, which was like a two-week intensive thing at Napier um, University, um, which was the, the building they used up, uh, my, me and my friends used to call it Pocahontas Rock, which was, a, there's a big like outlook there, which is fantastic, uh, beautiful view. Anyways, I did that before university and then I went off to Durham in the northeast and then I did uh, I did Bristol, I uh, did a master's um, in composition for film and TV at Bristol and then I moved to London and then I moved to LA. <laughs> I was about 12, 12 years later, 13 years of being in London and now I'm, I'm back and forth between London and Los Angeles now um, but I do come back to Edinburgh um, as often as I can because my parents are still there. What were your favourite musical tracks when you were growing up? Did you have any major influences? I mean, it was, it, it's, it's very cliched, but I was a big Star Wars um, fan of, of the music. I mean, John Williams' Star Wars score was one of the first CDs that I had. And uh, that was obviously 
hugely inspirational for a lot of composers, I think, growing up, and, and still is now to this day. Um, the next generation of composers absolutely still love those scores. Um, Danny Elfman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, those kind of scores um, were also a big influence. And then, of course, moving into, I mean, you know, people like Hans Zimmer, Michael Giacchino, James Newton Howard, all those, all those composers were a huge influence on uh, sort of developing your own style, really. I think your own style becomes a sort of amalgamation of all of your sort of heroes and people that you admire. Um, and then the sort of big melting pot of influences becomes something new in terms of your musical voice. And that, and that takes years to develop, but over time, um, it sort of settles into something which is, and also something which I think is just innate and inherent. Just as, you know, all of our voices sound different when we speak, we have a different musical sensibility sort of inherent within us, I think. So that also gets thrown into the, into the mix of, of how you end up sounding as a composer. Talking of soundtracks, I would imagine that to a lot of people, classical music is something that they wouldn't automatically think they would listen to but pretty much they're being exposed to something very similar to that every time they watch a film. James Bond soundtracks, Star Wars soundtracks, pretty much any movie soundtrack is being played by an orchestra who will be able to play classical music. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. I mean, I remember uh, one of my music teachers at at school actually playing us some uh, 20th century music, um, I think it was Schoenberg, and then playing us some Bernard Herrmann from, it would have been something like Psycho or something like that. And just showing us that actually something which was recognizable to us and like a famous piece of music could actually sound quite similar to a piece of 20th century contemporary classical music. Um, so it's a really accessible way to get in there. And if you look at the audience figures for film score concerts, you know, they're just, they're just huge. And that's why these orchestras keep putting on these film score concerts because people love going to music uh, music from the movies. Yes, definitely. That's something you see an awful lot of being advertised, for example, in Glasgow at the concert hall. Music from Game of Thrones, music from Jaws, these sort of things. And people are absolutely paying to go and see them. There is a huge demand for film music played by live orchestras. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and also these concerts... Um, Playing along to the picture have become quite popular as well. I know at the Albert Hall in London, I've been to quite a few of those concerts where, um, whether it's, uh, I think I saw The Matrix there, I saw West Side Story, I think it's a couple, a few of the Star Wars films as well, they've, they've played along there. Absolutely magical to see the film with the, with the orchestra played live beneath. And of course, that's, that's how they used to do it back in, the, back in the day, whether it was an orchestra, whether it was an organist or, or pianist in the, in the cinema. Um, it's kind of reverting back to the, sort of the start of cinema, which is really interesting. <laughs> so talking about going back, let's chat about how your career began. What were your first commissions? Oh, I mean, <laughs> where does it start? I did a, um, I mean, I started out doing a lot of theatre, actually, um, both at school and then at university. When I was at university, the film technology wasn't quite there for producing high-quality amateur films. Um, we were, people were still shooting on things like mini, mini DV, whereas this big revolution happened around about 2008 where the DSLR cameras and also a thing called the RED camera came in, which allowed people to shoot stuff that looked like film, but without paying for the cost of film. So um, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked there, but basically I, I did a lot of theatre because the films weren't good enough. They didn't look good enough. And I was like, this isn't, you know, 
uh, this, this isn't the best way to sort of enter stuff. And then I, the amazing student theatre that I was happening at Durham University when I was studying music there, allowed me to basically learn. I, I learned so much from my extracurricular activities. I must have done about 15 plays from Under Milk Wood to Angels in America to Dracula to We Clo. And for some of them, I actually got to use an orchestra in the orchestra pit. And I would conduct um, and sort of start the music as the actors went on stage for various scenes. And I was I was learning on the on the job and using live musicians, which, of course, we didn't need to pay for because those musicians wanted to um, spend their time doing extracurricular stuff. So it, that was a phenomenal experience um, in terms of uh, my, my education. But then really it was I, I finished very young. I think I was about 21 when I finished my master's. And so I turned up to London hoping to, you know, score score TV series and win a BAFTA within a few years and of course nobody nobody would hire me because I was 21 um, and it's a huge responsibility being given quite a lot of money to produce these scores because it can be very expensive to obviously produce with the orchestra uh, and so I did a, a huge amount of short films I mean I must have done about 80 to 100 short films really over over my time and uh, I just did more and more short films I was sort of you know doing a bit of bartending, catering on the side while to subsidise, you know, doing these short films for these up-and-coming directors. And then over the years, these directors then go on to, you know, direct TV series or feature films. And so you start getting a call saying, oh, actually, I've got, I've got a bit of money for this, got a bit of money for that. I had an interesting meeting with, a, you know, with, you know, this channel or that. And um, that led to a bunch of independent feature films, um, one of which was called Electric Man, actually, which was one of my first feature films. And that was filmed, that was filmed in Edinburgh by uh, two guys called Scott Mackay and Dave Barras. And that was a sort of comic book. It was about a comic book called Electric Man and about two guys who worked in a comic book store. And I did a sort of superhero style score to accompany the whole film, which was all done digitally because we couldn't afford a live orchestra. And I had to create this sampled orchestra um, just out of, you know, inside the computer, which was was, was really tricky. But um, Savalis in Glasgow, who were a um, audio, who are an audio post facility, uh, were so impressed by the score, they actually agreed to do a really, really good discounted mix on the final film and mix it all up in 5.1 so uh, that was that was a fantastic project to work on but after the independent feature films I, I went into tv and did um horizon um for the bbc did some documentaries there uh i also worked uh for the composer murray gold um on with a few things doctor who a thing called life story which is a david attenborough thing um and i was doing sort of um, additional musical arrangements um for him for about a year which was an amazing something i should have done earlier in my career i think you know working for another composer and just seeing how things work with somebody who's who's very very established in their in their career and then after that that led on to various other things uh, such as class which was a doctor who spin-off um back in um 2000 and oh was it 2016 i think it was i think it was 2016 yes um so that was eight parts of the bbc and then um i did a series called mcdonald and dodds for itv and yeah various various other things in between including uh, the amazing mr blunden which is um uh, an upcoming feature film for sky you just mentioned Electric Man, but rather modestly, Blair, you didn't mention that you were nominated for a BAFTA for that. Yes, it did. It did. It earned me a BAFTA, a BAFTA New Talent um, nomination. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the um, for the score. So that was, I mean, yeah, 
<laughs> that was a surprise, but I mean, really uh, amazing to be able to say that you know you're, you're theoretically BAFTA nominated that that early on in your career. Um, it was that was that was quite a quite an unexpected treat. Do you remember how you discovered and got into Doctor Who? My earliest Doctor Who memory. Um, my earliest Doctor Who memory is um, the Robots of Death. I have a picture of myself um, opening up a Christmas present. I think probably when I was about <laughs> maybe three, possibly four years old of the Robots of Death. And I remember it very vividly because it was one that really, really scared me. I mean, I, mean, I had it on VHS, obviously. I was, I was not uh, old enough to see it on its original broadcast, but it was a U certificate, which I still think is absolutely incredible because you've got these robots saying kill, kill, kill. And also like blood on the hands of the robot as well. And I can't believe it was a universal certificate. So my parents thought it was fine to give me as a Christmas present because it was a U. But it absolutely scared the bejesus out of me. And so I was banned from watching Doctor Who for about a year or two after that. So yeah, that was my earliest memory. But I do know that I watched Sylvester McCoy before. I don't have any recollection of it, but I do know that because it was on, my dad showed me some of the Sylvester McCoy episodes. He would record them on VHS um, and things like Battlefield and Greatest Show of the Galaxy. I would be I would be watching as a child. But my first real memory is the is the Robots of Death. Um, Revenge of the Cybermen is another one that I had on VHS. I think round about the same time. So that's another one that was one of the first one of the first VHSs I saw. So, when the show came back in 2005, that must have been really exciting for you, your first live season. Incredibly exciting. I mean, just, yeah, absolutely amazing. To I had no expectation that it would ever come back because for the majority of, well, really the whole of my conscious life up until that point, Doctor Who had never been on apart from the Paul McGann movie. And of course, um, uh, the Children in Need special as well. <laughs> If we're, if we're calling that canonical. So yeah, to have it come back was amazing. And I, uh, I remember seeing it for the first time at, at, at university and just being absolutely just blown away by this, this new version of the show. From watching the show, you would later become involved with the creation of the music with Murray Gold. Could you maybe tell us a wee bit about how that came about? My involvement with Murray came about from... I was actually at a... It was like a day for composers to mingle with other composers and they had a few speakers talking about their work on stage and Murray was one of those who came to talk to us and he was playing some bits from his laptop and stuff like that. And we just got chatting in the bar afterwards. And I think he could tell that I was a I was a fan of his, you know, fan of his work, a fan of of, of Doctor Who. And we just really enjoyed chatting to each other. And I sent him a few examples of my work afterwards. And I said, listen, you know, this, here's, here's a few, here's a little, you know, a few bits of what I do. And uh, it was about a year later, he sent me a message. I think it was on Facebook. I think he sent me a message saying, Blair, how busy are you right now? <laughs> Nothing else. Just Blair, how busy are you right now? I said, well, no, not, not too busy to speak to you, Murray. How, how can I possibly help? And he said, well, you know, let's meet, let's meet for a drink. Let's meet for a drink. So we met up for a drink. And basically he had about, you know, four or five TV shows colliding together at the same time. And so he needed somebody to help with doing some musical arrangements on his scores in order to just make those all happen in, in, in time. So 
Yeah, we started working. Uh, I mean, actually, we started working on a show called Crossbones, which uh, Murray actually didn't end up doing the music for. After a few months of working on it, he actually decided because of how things were going, he actually decided to quit the production because it was going to clash. Their schedule moved in a way that was going to clash with David Attenborough and with Doctor Who. And it was just, even with, you know, somebody like myself um, helping, it was just it was just too much. And they hadn't kept their end of the bar in terms of the dates. And so, um, yeah, somebody else ended up doing that. We did a lot of work on it, which has never seen the light of day, which was, oh, it was a real shame when that happened. But, you know, that's just, just the way the, the cookie crumbles sometimes. So then we started working on um, David Attenborough and, of course, Doctor Who. Now, he knew that I was... Um, he knew that I was a fan of Doctor Who, but I don't think he realised just quite how much of a fan I'd been growing up as a, as a child and stuff. So it was a real, yeah, it was a real pleasure to be able to, to assist him on the, the start of the um, Peter Capaldi era. And actually having the Peter Capaldi episodes on your hard drive and helping out on the score for those whilst you're seeing articles coming up on you know facebook or twitter being like what's what's the new doctor who going to be like rumors about capaldi and then seeing those rumors and seeing what actually matched because this was like you know six months in advance of of it all coming out and it was it was so strange to be on the other side of it where you're seeing the sort of the rumor machine working and you've actually got all the answers way way in advance of, of, of what's of what's coming so that was that was a real treat and also recording the bbc national orchestra of wales through in cardiff peter came and peter came in and said hello to us actually um and it was it was the first time he'd heard his theme and we had this camera in the um in the in the recording booth and peter went out into the orchestra and he sat in um in the chairs and he heard his theme for the first time and we had this this camera that could zoom in to various parts of the room and so we zoomed in on on peter's face and we got to see his reaction uh, to hearing his doctor's theme for the first time and i was just remember thinking to myself you know this is this is a moment in history you know this is a real moment in doctor who history where one of the doctors is hearing their theme for the first time and he came back. He came back in afterwards and said hello to us. And he was just an absolute, absolute gentleman. It was really, it was really great to have him drop in. I have to say, I loved hearing that theme being played live at the Doctor Who Symphonic Spectacular when it came to Glasgow. What a show! I, yeah, I remember. I went along to that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, wasn't it? You mentioned Peter Capaldi there. That wasn't the only time your work featured him on screen, was it? Yeah, yeah, gosh, yeah. Really only uh, uh, a few years later and I ended up um, working on class. I remember going going for an interview in Cardiff and meeting with um, Brian, Brian Minchin, Patrick Ness and Derek Ritchie. Derek Ritchie, of course, a fellow, a fellow Scot, part of the Doctor Who Scottish Mafia, of which there are a few of us, Kenny. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, to work on that was was just you know also a complete dream come true. Especially having Peter Capaldi in the in the first episode, to have the Doctor on screen and to be redoing a version of his theme um, in the in the style of the of, of the class score was a really it was a, a, a real treat. I remember when I did Martin's Close many years later which was the ghost story um, I did with Mark Gatiss. Um, and I went along to the read-through of that uh, with Peter there. He actually came up to me afterwards and he said, oh, I, I, you're the, uh, the composer of class, aren't you? And I went, oh, yes, I am. He's like, oh, very, very nice to meet you, Blair. Uh, 
I very much like what you did with my theme. <laughs> <laughs> that man is just amazing. I love him. And then he also said, the, mu- the music was very good when I was on screen. <laughs> I was just like, this is... Yeah, I was like, this is, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. So yes, no. I mean, working working on class was was really really great fun. Real real tight for time. I remember BBC Three decided to push push out the first two episodes at once. They had the first two episodes drop on the same day, and we were already really behind schedule. So the whole thing was done in a huge rush. But somehow, I'm incredibly proud of of, of what I managed to achieve in in, in the time frame that we had. Um, and it was a real honour to not only sort of work in the in the musical universe but also to come up with a new style and a new musical world and sound for a show in that universe and how how do you make it feel doctor who-esque without sort of you know treading over old ground and I, and i think we really did manage to achieve that in the end i think it felt very fresh but also had a sense of familiarity as well so yeah a, a really great project to have worked on I think one of the first times we spoke was in and around that period. Yep. So I remember you being so up against everything. Oh, every minute, every minute counted. Every minute counted. I mean, I was, I was, I took me about a month to recover after that. I was, my body and my mind were just physically wasted away. <laughs> I was running on fumes by the end of it, but also pushing myself so hard because, I mean. I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a huge fan of of Doctor Who, of the world. I know how much it means to me, how much it means to, you know, my fellow fans. To the amount of effort, I think, extra effort you put in when you understand the musical history and the importance and the, the emotional connection that we all have to watching, you know, these these episodes, and also the little Easter eggs that you can pop in and stuff like that. There's loads of little musical Doctor Who Easter eggs throughout class. And that takes a lot of planning, a lot of thinking, a lot of work. But you just throw every single inch of yourself into it because of how important it, it, it is. So I think that was the amazing thing. It's it's almost a bit of a curse because it means that you just you end up doing even more work than you would normally do because you just you want to go above and beyond to squeeze out every single inch of um, your time that you have. I just didn't, I just didn't see anyone, didn't do anything but just work on the music. So I was, I was obsessed with just making sure that it was as good as it possibly could be in the short time frame um, that we had. And uh, I, have, I have no regrets, I have no regrets. My, my friends didn't see me for, you know, two or three months, but I have, I have no regrets. <laughs> now, you released a class soundtrack through Silver Screen, and it's one of the most eclectic soundtracks I've ever heard and own with everything from bits of classical to rock guitars, contemporary pop, modern orchestral, absolutely everything. And for me, it's one of the greatest Doctor Who-related soundtrack releases ever, which I have said online for years quite regularly. Aww, thank you, thank you. That is is music to my ears. (laughs) And of course, in recent times, you've kept your hand in with the class universe. Yep and written a script for the big Finnish version of the series. How did that come about? I did indeed. Queen of Rhodia. Yeah, I mean, that was that was something that sort of came about, I think, from working on the class audios for Big Finish, um, the, the first two box sets, and, you know, really, really enjoying working on them. Um, but thinking to myself, gosh, 
I'd love to. And I've been thinking for a while about, you know, potentially maybe doing a Torchwood episode and sort of talking to, to James and Scott about it and, and being so inspired by how good a writer people like James and, and Scott are and learning so much from doing those audios. I mean, once you've, once you've scored a hundred of these audios, you know, you start to pick up a few tricks of how the, the, the episodes that work best. And so getting a chance to apply some of what I'd learned and actually write a script myself, which, I mean, I, I had written in the past. I, I wrote... Uh, a short film back at so when I was at university which I also directed and uh, had I'd written a few things here and there but it'd been a while because I've been so focused on composing so to get a chance to do that and I had a reasonable amount of time I actually remember I was away I had a holiday in China which was absolutely fascinating and a wonderful experience but I had quite a few moments of waiting around in airports and getting on long plane journeys and stuff like that so that was a great opportunity for me to do some writing and in between some of that downtime where it's very difficult to do it's a lot harder to do composing on a plane than it is to do a script and so I started using those spare moments to write this class script and I love those characters so much and I think we were all very very sad at what happened with the show and it not coming back for a season two and you can hear that in my scripts there are I remember somebody saying it was sort of very meta and I think I think that's true there is there is an aspect of that script which is interacting with the fans and with the sadness of the fact that we never got to see the ending that we all wanted to see so I was really delighted at the reception to that script I, I got some lovely comments from people who listened to it um, so that was that was very very nice to to hear more recently Blair you've been back in Scotland working with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra could you maybe tell us a wee bit about this project Absolutely. So there's a brand new facility um, called Scotland Studio, which has been um, built in Glasgow. And that is the RSNO's new recording home for recording not only their, uh, their classical output, but also film scores. Uh, and they've been trying to, we've been talking for about a year or two about trying to find something to do. Uh, as the as the first project, because um, I was very interested in, in sort of being the first one to take that leap and support the orchestra, um, bring film music back to my home country, back to Scotland. And The Amazing Mr. Blunden is actually a remake of a 1972 film by Lionel, um, directed by Lionel Jeffries. And a composer called Elmer Bernstein did the music for that original film in 1972. Now, I went on a school trip in 1997 to see Elmer Bernstein conduct the RSNO. And so I remember that very vividly as being one of my first memories of, of falling in love with film music. And Elmer, Elmer had a very special relationship with the orchestra. And because of that, when I got the gig for The Amazing Mr. Blunden, I felt I just had to get the RSNO to record it somehow. So I called them and saw about their availability and about what state the studio was in. And basically, it was, it was ready. Uh, all the microphones, all the, the desk, the speakers, they've got this amazing equipment there. I mean, we're really talking about something which is comparable um, to Abbey Road where they record, and Air Studios in London, where they record a lot of the big um, film uh, scores, not only in the UK, but also abroad as well. I mean, you know, people like Hans Zimmer come across to do um, scores like Inception, and Interstellar, stuff like that. It's, it, it is a lot of those scores, the Marvel scores as well, are as well, are recorded in the UK. So 
we managed to find a date that worked and The Amazing Mr. Blunden became the first ever film score to be recorded in Scotland's studio. And I mean, conducting that orchestra um, and composing for them was just a dream come true because I mean, I saw them not only in 1997, but I would go to the Usher Hall. Um, in fact, I even, I remember very vividly seeing Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto um, at the Usher Hall because I remember it was Valentine's Day and I took myself along and I didn't have a date. It was just me. It was a very sad Valentine's Day of just me going along because I loved Rachmaninoff so much to go see the RSNO play um, play that, that, that piece. And um, yeah, I mean, just absolutely fantastic. So to then see an orchestra which inspired me growing up in Scotland playing my music really was, uh, it was just a fantastic feeling. But this facility is going to bring so much work to Scotland in the future because there's a huge bottleneck because of COVID um, and also because of the amount of music that's just being recorded in this country. There's so many productions looking for film scores and they all want to come to the UK and use our musicians and our facilities because we really are the best in the world. And what's happened is Scotland's managed and the RSNO have managed to create a facility and have an orchestra which is completely comparable um, to those those players and those facilities down in London. So I think we're going to see a huge explosion of film music being recorded in Scotland. And it's, it's such an honour for us to have been the first to do that. Obviously, you're in LA at the moment, but I've noticed there's a hell of a lot of publicity on Sky for this production. That must really please you to know that they're pushing it really hard. Yeah, I mean they're really they're really publicising it. I know you know Sky put put a lot of effort and and time and money into into this. It's something they really believe in. And of course, Mark Gatiss, um, who uh, was the co-creator of Sherlock and has written and starred in episodes of Doctor Who and also The League of Gentlemen, as well. He um, he directed and adapted this version of The Amazing Mr. Blunden and to have him at the helm and then also a fantastic cast and uh, we've got Tamsin Gregg, Simon Callow, um, the children who are a big part of the story, we've got some fantastic new voices um, in there. It really is, really is a brilliant cast and also a, a, a real family adventure. It's a sort of, it's what they call in Hollywood as a, a four quadrant film. It hits all the quadrants. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's similar to Doctor Who in that way that the whole family can sit down and watch it you know it's it's something that that dad and mum are going to enjoy just as much as the kids it's not a kids film kids will absolutely love it but it is something that really it's not childish it's something that appeals to the whole family because it's just a very captivating story and I, I think that's quite rare to to really achieve that and those are the films that tend to sort of stand the test of time which is probably why the original is um is so well loved among the generation of those who who saw it but this will obviously be bringing it forward to a, to a new a new generation. Um, with some, there's some fantastic visual effects, and and I think the story has been adapted really well by Mark for a for a modern audience. Something that you did work on was a documentary, Andrew Carnegie: Ranks to Riches, Power to Peace, which must have been quite interesting for you working on a documentary about a fellow Scotsman. Absolutely, yeah, that was, and we had um, Brian Cox, another fellow Scott, Brian Cox of, of succession fame, not of the um, science um, fame, doing the, um, doing the voiceover. Uh, that was a really interesting project, and I know that they were very interested in working with me, um, obviously with the Scottish uh, connection. Um, a really talented producer called Sunita got in contact with me 
and they'd made this fantastic documentary about the, the history of An Andrew Carnegie. And I think it's about a 90 minute uh, documentary, which I think is available on Amazon Prime. Andrew Carnegie from Rags to Riches, I think I believe it was called. They changed, they changed the title, I think, after I, um, after I finished it. And it's a really, I mean, God, that man, such a fascinating story of that man's life um, and the good, the f philanthropy that he did in terms of giving away his wealth um, to others, I think is, is really inspiring. In an age where I think, you know, capitalism has, has uh, made big companies very greedy, he was somebody who really believed in sharing his wealth for the, for the greater good and that people shouldn't really be hanging on to these huge amounts of wealth for their own benefit. They really believed that we should be sharing that and sort of benefiting society. Um, so he was a really inspiring figure um, to write music about and um, although as always we didn't have very much time to do the score um, I, I'm really pleased with how that turned out and there are some really nice um, sort of Scottish um, little hints of, um, of music in that as well. You've worked on a lot of Big Finish Torchwood releases but one of your first credits came on an adaptation of a 90s new adventure book, Nightshade by Mark Gatiss. That must have been a real joy for you doing a Doctor Who like that. Yeah, actually Nightshade, Nightshade came after Torchwood, I think. I, I, yeah, I think it did, probably, probably very shortly after. But I came to Torchwood through James Goss, who I knew through Christopher Allen. I had done the theme music for the Doctor Who fan show, uh, which Chris Allen produced and Crystal D presented. And Chris Allen was friends with James Goss. They knew that I'd worked with Murray. And when James met me, he thought, uh, oh, there isn't any chance that you might do a new version of the Torchwood uh, theme with there for the, for, for the Big Finish series that's upcoming. And I thought, oh, wow, that's exciting. We're getting... We're getting some more Torchwood. So uh, I said, yeah, that would be, um, I'd, I'd certainly be up for that. And they said, oh, you wouldn't, we don't really have very much money, but might you be at all interested in doing the music as well? The rest of the music, the incidental score. So I had to think about it and I said, yeah, go on then. Why not? Let's do it. Because I was such a fan of, of, of that world. And I think I think Torchwood is a fantastic premise. I mean, I, I think, you know, some some episodes are obviously better than others from the original TV run. But when it when it's really running, I mean, it is, is a fantastic show. I and mean, things, things like Children of Earth are just absolutely brilliant. So it was great to play around in that musical world. And, and we were I think we were quite reverential to the Torchwood score to begin with and then it starts to sort of veer off into sort of becoming its its own thing um, while still paying respect to the to the original uh, at the appropriate moments but yeah I, because I hadn't really planned to stay as long as I, I have but James is such a talented writer and both he and Scott Hancock are so great to work with um, and Lisa as well who, who, who's um, directed some of them are just great to work with so it, it doesn't really feel like work it's this lovely monthly treat that comes along so i i've just i've just kept on kept on doing it <laughs> you've done a few versions of the torchwood theme with a string-led victorian one as well as a version for torchwood soho set in the 1950s with a very militaristic drum throughout it do you have a favorite i mean i think the victorian one that was that was back at a point where i, I think that was the first new version of the theme that we'd done. So to deconstruct 
because obviously my version of the torture theme involved deconstructing Murray's version, and I did I did change things. I I spent I think I cut in half the amount of time it takes for the chords to change because it's a shorter theme um, because it's it's going into an audio story, um, so it felt appropriate to do something which was a bit more snappy. And I think musically that actually uh, helped it in some ways in terms of the making it feel like it had more even more of a sense of urgency to it. Um, so being able to deconstruct that and then create the sort of classical version for the Victorian age, I think was really good fun. And we also had some live strings on that, which was always great to have some live uh, players playing the, playing the music. Um, there's also the one I think we did for Torchwood Serenity, which was a kind of, almost a kind of kitsch Muzak version, which was, which was good fun. But I think for me, I mean, the original, the original is still my favorite, but the Victorian age is a, is, is a close second. Blair, it's been an absolute joy to chat with you today. Hopefully we'll speak again soon about some more of your work in the Doctor Who universe and beyond. Absolutely, I'd love to. Thank you so much. So there we go. That's Blair Mowat. You can find him on social media where you can give him a follow on Twitter or you can visit his website www.blairmowat.co.uk That's B-L-A-I-R-M-O-W-A-T I hope you've enjoyed our episodes this year covering everything from our memories of conventions to VHS tapes, our interview episodes with Big Finish creatives and people behind Doctor Who animations and Blu-rays, as well as our normal chit-chats discussing Doctor Who off the telly as well. In 2022, we'll be back for what will be our fourth year of podcasting, but we will be cutting back a little, so please don't expect an episode a week. Until next time, I've been Kenny Smith. And to play us out today, since Blair worked in class, here's the theme for that show, Alex Clare's song, Up All Night. See you next year. Waking up in someone else's bed was what I was waiting for. All my days, what have I done? She saw me sneaking out the door. What have I been waiting for? Been wasting all my time. Watching my youth slip away as surely is a crime. I know she don't know what we do in our spare time. No, she don't know that we've been up all night. Sunset